Today, we'll talk about the Iran nuclear deal. What could perhaps be the final effort to revive the Iran nuclear deal will begin at the end of the month as negotiators meet in Vienna. The United States, having walked away from the deal under the Trump administration, is now pushing for even more concessions from Iran. But this kind of arrogance is nothing new. It's been the defining feature of U.S. government policy towards Iran going back to the 1953 CIA-sponsored coup d'etat, intensifying greatly after the 1979 People's Revolution that overthrew the U.S. puppet monarchy. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We go in this program beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Mohamed Morandi, an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature at the University of Tehran. Professor Morandi, welcome back. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk today about U.S.-Iran relations. Of course, there is coming up in the capital city of Austria in Vienna, another round of discussions between the Iranian government and the other signatories to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear arms deal, which President Trump tore up and said it was the worst deal ever. And he imposed instead new far-reaching pretty draconian economic sanctions on the people of Iran. What's your expectation for this next round of discussions? I'm not expecting very much. I would be very surprised if there is any agreement about implementing the nuclear deal, simply because the Americans and the Europeans show no sign of being willing to implement the deal in full. When the deal was signed in 2015, uh, the United States and the Europeans had one set of commitments that they had to honor, and the Iranians had their own set of commitments. And Obama, from day one, he dragged his feet, he tried not to implement the deal in full, and he never did, even until the very last day of his presidency. And then, of course, Trump tore the deal. When Biden was elected president, some Americans linked to the Biden administration in in think tanks, they would invite me to talk. And it was interesting that they were all expecting Biden to sign a presidential decree as soon as he went to office. And I predicted, and so did some others, that he would do nothing. He would just simply continue Trump's policy. And it turned out that we were right, So, which I, I found quite fascinating that people linked to Biden would be so wrong about his intentions. 
And the reason why Biden did this is because he's trying to do the same thing that Trump did, and that is to put pressure on ordinary Iranians to make women and children suffer, to kill people, kill patients in hospitals and ruin lives and destroy the lives of children and the vulnerable uh, so that he can get more concessions from Iran. But Trump already did that. And for four years, he got nothing. And on many occasions, again, American colleagues or Americans in, in think tanks who invite me to their online seminars or in person before COVID, they would say that Iran is going to ultimately have to accept Trump's conditions. And for four years, I was telling them that, no, Iran is not going to accept appeasement. Iran didn't. Trump left the White House. Iran continued to refuse to appease the United States. And there's no reason why Iran is going to now appease Biden. When they didn't appease Trump, there's no reason to believe that Biden is going to get anything from Iran. But that's just how it works for now. So as things stand, I cannot really see the United States as changing course or the Europeans as changing course and moving towards full implementation of the deal. They continue to want to get more than they had. And the interesting thing is that if anything has changed since 2015, it's to Iran's advantage. The United States has failed in Afghanistan. We have the rise of China. The internal situation in the United States is very difficult. The economy, political divisions, the social divisions, the United States is not in a stronger position today than it was six years ago, whereas Iran has become used to the sanctions. It's not easy, but the economy is stabilized. Iran's allies across the region are pushing forward. The Saudis are collapsing in Yemen, and the United States and the Saudis and their allies have failed in Lebanon. So really, if anyone is going to get concessions, it's Iran. But as long as the United States wants to gain new concessions or to bring about changes to the JCPOA, because what the Americans are saying right now is that we want the Iranians to accept us keeping certain sanctions in place that were added after the nuclear deal. And the Iranians are saying that's unacceptable. And they also want Iran to accept new conditions. In addition to Iran's demand that the nuclear deal has to be respected in full, the Iranians are saying that since Americans left the deal and they caused so much damage to the Iranians, if anything, it's the Iranians who should be demanding compensation. So the world has changed. The U.S. is indebted to Iran. The Europeans, of course, they obeyed Trump, even though they pretended that they were outraged, but they imposed the maximum pressure sanctions that Trump wanted them to. So this is where things stand. I'm not optimistic, but the Iran's are going to give it a try. Mohammed, I want to, well, I want you to help us, help our audience understand what it is that causes so much animus and hostility from the United States towards the government of Iran. You know, frequently right now, every time the U.S. government 
ratchets up a new sort of policy of hostility towards any country, whether it's China or Iran or Cuba or Venezuela, the mantra in the U.S. media is the U.S. opposes authoritarianism and that there's this new world block of authoritarian governments. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, Iran had a democratically elected government between 1950 and 53. That government dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, AIOC, now later known as BP or British Petroleum. And when the Iranian government did that, the CIA with British intelligence conducted overt and covert operations. The U.S. and Britain imposed very heavy economic sanctions, destabilized the country, created a part of the population that went into street protests against the existing government that had dared to nationalize the oil, then carried out a coup d'etat or a counter-revolution. And thousands of Iranians died. And the U.S. and Britain imposed on the Iranian people a monarch, a dictator, the Shah. I mean, you can't get more authoritarian than a monarchy imposed on a people after it already has a democratic form of government. And for the next 26 years, under this authoritarian government, the U.S. gave money, gave aid, gave assistance. The Shah, doing his part, had denationalized the oil so it could go back to British and American oil companies. And then the people of Iran have a people's revolution against a monarch, against a king in 1979. And from that moment on, the U.S. has this policy of extreme hostility, animus, economic sanctions, you know, cooperating with Saddam Hussein to launch the invasion of Iran in 1980. And then we hear the Americans are told, the American people are told, well, you know what? We're fighting authoritarianism. Anyway, let's just talk about that because what is it really? What was the real sin of the Iranian government? Because it's clearly not the problem of authoritarianism. Why does the U.S., hate Iran or its government so much? Well, this is a, a complicated question. And I think there are numerous layers here. And some of what I say may be a bit controversial. But I think the problem for Iran was partially because the revolution, and it was an Islamic revolution, was humiliating for the United States, the fact that it was able to undermine U.S. power in the Persian Gulf region, that a regime that was basically in, in the U.S. camp, which abided by U.S. demands, was replaced one that was fiercely independent. That was unacceptable. And then we had the embassy takeover, which was a humiliating experience for the U.S. government. And American, the American government and many Americans, many ordinary Americans, like historians, they think that the hostility between Iran and the United States began with the embassy takeover. But the embassy takeover was the result of U.S. actions. The U.S. supported the Shah, as you pointed out. They created the secret police for the Shah, the Savak, which was very brutal. When the Shah was massacring people on the streets in Tehran and other cities by the thousands, Carter 
gave his full support, especially after Black Friday, which was a particularly bloody day in Tehran. So when the U.S. gave refuge to the Shah, who had taken out billions of dollars of money, and then, of course, tens of billions of dollars through his allies and friends, he was given refuge in the United States. The students, they were protesting the U.S. taking in a mass murderer who had stolen Iranian assets but also because the Iranian people were afraid of a repetition of 1953, the coup d'etat back then. So they took the embassy to force the Americans to hand over the Shah. It's sort of like our Osama bin Laden, someone who had killed thousands of Americans. If, if the Iranians or if any country in the world had given refuge to him, how would the Americans have responded? Well, in, in the case of Afghanistan, we saw what happened. So the embassy takeover was the result of U.S. policy. It wasn't the beginning of anything. But I think there's also another problem, and that is in the United States, many people on the left, they also took a very hostile attitude towards Iran because they accepted the caricatures, the traditional Orientalist caricatures of Iran, that Iran is this backward theocracy which will take the country back to the Middle Ages, sort of like Saudi Arabia, which is a U.S. ally, and that Iran supports radical, not radical in the positive, but radical in the negative sense, radical Islamic groups that are going to take away human rights, as if there are any human rights in this part of the world or almost anywhere else where the Americans or the Soviet Union dominates sort of like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and these other groups which the Americans and their allies helped to create, whether it's through Turkey and Syria or Saudi Arabia and others, or whether in Afghanistan or elsewhere where the United States used these very same extremist groups, Iran was sort of depicted from the beginning as a sort of evil Saudi Arabia, which supported evil terrorist groups that were extremists by nature. And I think in the United States, the left and the right sort of accepted this narrative for a very long time, even though Iran was supporting Nicaragua, the Sandinistas in the 1980s. It was supporting Cuba. It was supporting the resistance in South Africa, the anti-apartheid movement. And Nelson Mandela, when he was freed from prison, one of the first countries that he traveled to was Iran. And, you know, one of the interesting things, in my opinion, is that when we look at the war on Iraq, even though Iran was opposed to the U.S. war against Saddam Hussein, the left in the United States was opposed to war. Even though Saddam Hussein was a brutal murderer who had gassed his own people and gassed Iranians with American help, with European help, but the left was very opposed to war, rightly so. I was a part of the anti-war coalition. But when this began its dirty war in Syria, destroyed so much of the country, there wasn't that support for Syria. And I think it was because of Syria's alliance with Iran. So Iran is so horrible, or has been so horrible in the eyes of so many people in the United States, that it's very difficult for people to sort of see through the propaganda. And I think that's beginning to change, because I think some progressives in the United States, or increasingly some progressives in the United States, recognize that Iran is not all that evil, that we're not as nasty as some may think. 
And we have some people who have, I mean, for example, Flint and Hillary Leverett, who wrote a very good book, Going to Tehran, to people who worked in the White House. We have increasingly serious academics, serious activists, serious educated people who are questioning the narratives on Iran, and who, I believe, since Americans are increasingly questioning their own media, nowadays, more more people are willing to, let's say, question the narratives on Iran. So I think Iran has been in a particularly difficult situation when it comes to U.S. public opinion over the past four decades. Of course, I'm not saying Iran is a utopia, but I'm saying, in my view, it is definitely no dystopia. So I don't know if I've answered your question appropriately, especially since it's pretty late at night and it's sort of complicated, but that's sort of how I see it. No, I appreciate your comment. I just want to share something with you. In 1979, when the Shah was brought to the United States, I was with a group of young, mostly young radicals at that time, much younger than we are today, by the way, who staged a pretty big protest demanding that the Shah be returned. And we had a couple thousand people, not huge, not tens of thousands, but a couple thousand in New York City. And then I was actually asked by this group to go to San Antonio, Texas, where the Shah had been taken. He was at Lackland Air Force Base. So I went to San Antonio with the assignment to organize a national demonstration in San Antonio, Texas, a place where I don't think there ever has been a national demonstration, demanding that the righteous plea and demand of the Iranian people for this war criminal to be returned to face justice, that the U.S. return him and that that would be the solution to the U.S. embassy crisis in Tehran. So we went to San Antonio, Texas. I rented an apartment there. We started organizing and it was so brutal. I can't tell you how brutal it was. The Iranian students some of whom were part of the ISA, the Iranian Student Association, others associated with more religious affiliated groups. They were doing sit-ins and hunger strikes. They were beaten. They were tormented. The KKK came out and organized mass protests against our efforts to organize a demand calling for the Shah to be returned. It became a huge deal in Texas. And then, of course, the Shah was sick and they sent him out of Texas and sent him to Panama. The heat was on. But the thing that was most noteworthy, and the reason I want to mention it, not just to take a walk down memory lane, is that I felt it was the end of the 60s. You know, even though it was much later than the 60s, it was 1979. But we were all surprised, those of us who had been anti-Vietnam War protest activists and organizers, we had the American people more or less with us by 1970. And so when U.S. imperialism was carrying out this next egregious act, bringing the Shah to the United States, we thought, because we were young and naive, we thought, yeah, the American people will react as they did during Vietnam. They'll sort of see through their government's imperial policy. And we couldn't have been more wrong. The political atmosphere shifted so dramatically. And even the idea that Ronald Reagan, who we considered to be a right-wing extremist, could become president, that seemed outlandish in 1976. Matter of fact, I went to an embassy here in New York City, and one of the foreign diplomats said, who do you think will be 
president of the United States next. And I said, whoever I said, and he said, we think it'll be Ronald Reagan. And I laughed and I said, oh no, Ronald Reagan could never be president of the United States. He's too far right wing. But under the pressure of what happened in 1979, indeed, Ronald Reagan with his ultra right program came into office and the entire American foreign policy, which had been on its heels, reeling from the defeat in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, and, you know, coupled with the losses of, you know, the Afghan revolution in 1979 or the Nicaraguan revolution in 1979 or the your revolution in Iran, they became ultra aggressive and everything sort of shifted. Al Haig came in and said, we're going to stop the communist winning streak because anybody who had a revolution was undoubtedly motivated by communism because that was the, you know, the dominant narrative. Anyway, I think it's so important what you were saying because this was in many ways a turning point. 79 was, of course, a turning point for the people of Iran, but it was a turning point for public consciousness in the United States because the government successfully demonized Iran to such a high degree that it sort of gave a new lifeline to right-wing political forces in America. Anyway, again, I'm taking a little bit too much time, but I think it's kind of an important moment in not just your history, but global history. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. I think that if one goes back and look, I mean, I'm a bit younger than you, but when you look at what happened in Vietnam and how that transformed U.S. society. I think it was a bit, for many, would be unexpected, even though after Vietnam ended, it wasn't as if the whole of America was had changed. The country was still divided, and many were still very pro-establishment. But I think the, the revolution in Iran did show that the political establishment in the United States was indeed capable of using Iran, or at least Iran among other issues, to consolidate themselves. And I think it also has a lot to do with Orientalism, the very fact that these, you know, non-Western, brown people, Muslims, backward, you know, people like myself, you know, camel jockeys and towel heads and, and all that, that they were able to kick out the, you know, the imperialists, the hegemon from their country, and, and the Americans were unable to undermine them, and the Americans were unable to rescue their staff that were taken in response to what the United States did with the Shah and with other mass murderers in Iran. The fact that they felt so helpless, I think, in confronting these supposedly very backward people, and I would, of course, argue that the revolutionaries were not backward, they were not medieval, they were very sharp-minded, and I don't consider Iran to be an authoritarian dictatorship. Again, I'm not saying it's utopia, I don't can't see any utopia on this planet as we speak, but I think that the political establishment was able to use that to its advantage. And it's not only Iran, it's, you know, right, more reason for decades it was Iran. But of course, it's also linked to Israel. The fact that Iran was opposed to apartheid in Palestine and the Israeli government and Zionists in the United States are so keen on supporting the Israelis and apartheid in Palestine 
that helped increase the antagonism towards Iran significantly. But I think it's not just unique to Iran. In more recent years, for example, after Russia felt its knees, basically, when the Soviet Union collapsed, for a period of time, the Russians were no longer demonized. But when we saw the revival of Russia under President Putin, we saw the Russians beginning to become increasingly antagonized. In other words, this hatred, this deep-seated hatred towards the Russians, and this began to, I think, sort of manifest itself in a similar way as their hatred towards Iran did. And then, of course, more recently, China, until five, six years ago, no one was talking about how evil the Chinese government was. But with the rise of Trump, suddenly the, the discourse in the United States dramatically changed. And all of a sudden, the Chinese were doing all sorts of evil things. You, all you have to do is check the websites of MSNBC or CNN or Fox News or anyone. Suddenly, you see a whole, you know, all sorts of reports on China. So the political establishment in the United States, the corporate media, the media affiliated to the state, and the so-called human rights organizations, and all these establishment NGOs and influential bodies in the United States together have been able to have a huge impact on how Americans think. And I think probably the most, for me, and this sort of goes outside the United States, one of the most extraordinary moments in, I mean, I don't mean moment as in a single minute, but one of the most extraordinary periods of time that I've experienced in, in my life was the anti-war coalition in 2003. For, I was in the UK at that time. As soon as the war began, the anti-war movement collapsed. So even though people did not accept the narrative of the BBC and the establishment media or the legacy media or the corporate media or however one would like to call it, but once the war began, the mood in the UK changed significantly. So public opinion is something very complicated, and the way in which narrative building works is very complicated, and I don't have any answers to it. But my understanding of why Iran has been so thoroughly demonized in the United States, my belief is that it's linked to the fact that the media was able to sort of convince both the left and right that Iran was somehow backward, and I think they use Orientalist stereotypes, and they use the leftist skepticism towards religion, and the right sort of a lot of the racism that exists in the right, if not in the left as well, to sort of create this consensus in the United States about Iran, which of course was never universal. And many progressives and many decent Americans always viewed the situation differently. You know many of them. But I think that that has always been a particularly difficult issue for Iranians to deal with when it came to the United States. Very interesting. In in 1954, after the CIA and the British intelligence successfully overthrew the Iranian government, the one that I mentioned that had nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, and again, using some of the same playbook that's being employed now, sanctions, imposing economic hardship, destabilizing the country, fomenting political opposition, and then you know putting a lot of money into covert operations to carry out terror, basically, inside of Iran. The New York Times, which is considered like the Washington Post, 
to be the liberal media, not like Fox News, not like National Review, not like the John Birch Society. But in 1954, the New York Times editorial reads about the Iran coup, the American coup in Iran, quote, underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their numbers that goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. That would be nationalizing Iran's own oil was the indicator of, of having gone berserk with fanatical nationalism. And there was in this editorial, see you, not just in Iran, but all over the world, look at Iran because you have an object lesson in the price that you will pay if you dare do what Iran did. And, you know, the reason I'm thinking about it, too, is I was asking some people in Cuba who are suffering the same demonization, blockades, economic sanctions, covert operations ever since Fidel and the Cuban July 26th movement came to power. Now, that's an explicitly socialist government, not like Iran, but there's something in common with Iran. Many. There's many things in common. But one of them is that the Cubans who I was talking to said, the Americans have always treated us with hostility since we had a revolution because they treat us like a slave that had broken free and that they needed to return the enslaved person back to the plantation, back to captivity. And, you know, I think it is the mentality of the Washington policymakers. Even here we are, you know, long after the American Civil War and the end of chattel slavery, there's this idea that Iran really belongs to them, that Iran's oil belongs to them, that its land and resources and its people should be really possessed by these old colonial powers. And Iran, regardless of it, whether it's a theocracy or a secular government, whether it's socialist or not socialist, just its independence from the old colonizer or semi-colonizing forces, that's your crime. You know, that's your original sin. Yes, and going berserk is one of those Orientalist stereotypes, you know, how the Oriental is emotional, irrational, incapable of governing itself or himself or herself. But it's ironic that the United States now, the same New York Times, when they talk about Mossadegh, he's suddenly the hero. He's suddenly the good guy. Why? Because they try to now use him as a tool to antagonize Iran. But the problem with Iran is not whether it's an Islamic democracy or limited democracy or whether Iran is Muslim or not. As you rightly point out, it's because that Iran is independent. So when Iran helps Venezuela, the Venezuelans understand the reality of Iran. That's why their views of Iran and the Iranian government and the Islamic Republic of Iran are quite favorable. The same is true with Syrians. The Christians of Syrians see Iran as their savior. The, the moderate Sunnis, the Sufis, the Druze, all of them see Iran as their savior. In Lebanon, Iran's allies, the Hezbollah, their own allies are among the Christians, among the Druze, among the Sunnis. They are seen as the enemies of the United States. Lebanese Christians 
are antagonized by the United States because they're close to Hezbollah. And even though Hezbollah helps protect the Christians of Lebanon, the Syrian government helped protect the Christians of Syria. But the United States sanctions them because of their relationship with Iran. So it's not an issue of Islam. It's not the issue of an Islamic Republic. You can be antagonized whether you're Cuban or whether you're Syrian or whether you're Iranian. It doesn't matter where you're from. As long as you're opposed to this imperial domination, then you're evil. But they'll use different labels in order to dehumanize you and to legitimize their aggressiveness and their violation of human rights in order to legitimize war crimes and sanctions and maximum pressure directed at women and children, they have to demonize the governments and the populations that are being targeted. Otherwise, people will blame Western governments. But if they are convinced that their, their opponents are even worse, then somehow this sort of behavior becomes more acceptable. Mohammed, in our last couple minutes, I just want to bring attention back for our audience about what the U.S. and its Israeli ally have been doing towards Iran, towards the Iranian people. Of course, in early January 2020, when General Soleimani came to Baghdad Airport to meet with the Iraqi government for the purpose of regional peace talks, which the U.S. government knew about, the U.S., assassinated General Soleimani, the man who had been, among all others, the leading force, military force, in the fight against ISIS. And as you know, and as all of us who are paying attention remember, there was a series of, you know, Iran retaliated, Iran showed that it had the capacity to hit U.S. troops on U.S. military bases in Iraq. It did it in a measured way, but it showed that it had capability that could break through American air defenses, measured because the Iranians were showing, look, we want to show we have capacity and at the same time give the Trump administration a way to step back, step back from the brink of regional war, a regional war that would have made the war in Afghanistan look like a tea party for the United States. And in fact, the Trump administration did step back. It had to step back. And so Iran demonstrated a real capacity to show its regional strength. And I think it's such a misnomer by U.S. policymakers and perhaps those people in the United States who sadly are getting their information not from Breakthrough News or the Socialist Program, but from CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, the idea that Iran is hobbled, Iran is weak, the Iranian people don't support their government. It's just a matter of, you know, moments or days before there's some successful regime change. All of these fantasies that are promoted and continue to drive U.S. policy and also public perception. I'd like you to talk about how it is in Iran now. You've had COVID like the rest of the world. You've had all of this aggression by the United States, intensified aggression in the last few years. I'd like you to talk about the mood and the sort of public perceptions inside of Iran. And also, very quickly as we wrap up, Iran obviously has other places to be able to do trade and have economic interaction with. There is the People's Republic of China. There is Russia. 
as you mentioned, Venezuela, Iran's helping Venezuela. But just talk about Iran's stature. Obviously, the U.S. was hoping to completely isolate Iran, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem that way. Anyway, I'll give you the last word, a couple big questions, but if you could generalize or, or help us summarize some of this. One of the ironies is that the Americans and the Europeans try to make you ordinary Iranians suffer as much as possible through brutal sanctions and other means. And then they say that the Iranian government is incompetent and corrupt. They do that in order to cover up their own crimes, the fact that they're targeting ordinary people, trying to kill them, to hurt them, to make them suffer, to get ill sanctions. Why are they trying to make people suffer? So... You know, for 40 years, they've been saying that the regime, and that's the term they like to use to sort of delegitimize Iran, the regime is on the verge of collapse. We saw the the huge funerals in Iran and in Iraq, and they were also saying that how Iraqis hate Iran. But we saw the huge funerals in different Iraqi cities, as well as in Iran. So for the Americans to count on regime change in Iran or to count on Iraq falling into the lap of the United States and Iraqis begging for the United States to keep occupying the country, that, that's simply wishful thinking. The smart thing for the Americans to do is to end their occupation in this region, especially as the economy deteriorates, just as what we saw in Afghanistan. The occupation in the rest of West Asia is only going to make things more difficult for ordinary Americans. U.S. antagonism towards Iran, as you alluded to, encourages greater cooperation between Iran, China, and Russia. All three countries are being antagonized simultaneously by the United States. So if the United States wants to isolate itself, and if it wants to help Asian countries to move closer to each other, the United States and the Europeans are pursuing a very good policy. That's the objective. The objective is to increase the number of countries that have problems with the United States and to push all these countries together, especially three key powerful countries, China, Russia, and Iran, well, then they've been quite successful. But I think instead of you know, hoping for some sort of regime change with every slight sign of discontent, then they're going to be waiting for a, a very, very long time. Well, that's all the time we have. We were very happy to be joined by Professor Mohammed Mirandi. He is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. He spoke to us from Iran. Obviously, the impact of economic sanctions on the people of Iran, on their technology, on their way of life has been dramatic, and yet the Iranian people persevere. We want to thank him for joining us to help people in the United States and around the world understand the U.S.-Iran conflict from the point of view of those who live inside Iran. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, are now available every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with partner Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news analysis and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 